Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody, here in New York City. It's a lovely day, and we have a very special program this afternoon, evening. Um, we are going to be talking about a topic that has fascinated professionals and the lay listening audience for decades, for hundreds of years, in fact, and it's one of the uh, topics that even the professional community gets extremely involved in, and we are going to be talking about pseudoscience and archaeology, and so the title of our program on our series, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, is especially grounded in the types of discussions that I think you'll be hearing today. My very special guest is Dr. Kenneth Fader, who is a professor of archaeology at Central Connecticut State University, and he is the author of several books on archaeology, not the least of which are several volumes that deal with pseudoscience. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome you to the program, Dr. Fader. Thanks for showing up. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think this is one of the topics that I think has, uh, based on a couple of uh, previous episodes that have sort of skirted around this issue, uh, this is a topic that a lot of people are fascinated with. And I think that if you give us a little bit of background of how you got into it as a professional, and obviously you placed a major major focus on it, then we can pretty much get started and start to uh, sort of uh, grill you about the types of issues that you typically confront when you deal with this topic. Oh, yeah, you bet. And, I mean, you're absolutely right. that This, this is uh, an issue that really grabs people. All you have to do is turn on the TV and, and scroll down your cable channels and see so many shows dedicated to ancient aliens or Atlantis or Nostradamus or the Maya apocalypse. So, so for, for absolutely clear that people are fascinated by this. My fascination really began when I was in college and uh, I, I simply was, I actually was getting my hair cut, 
And the person cutting my hair, I asked what I, what I did. And I said, well, I'm, I'm an archaeology student at the university. And uh, the next question was, oh, did you hear about the guy who says that, that the Egyptian pyramids were built by extraterrestrial astronauts? And I had never heard anything like that. And I thought that was just crazy. And a couple of months later, I was listening to the radio late at night, and there was a book review on the radio of a book called Chariots of the Gods by the Swiss author Eric von Doniken. And as they were reviewing the book, I said, oh my, I made the connection. Wow, this is what the person cutting my hair was talking about. This guy is saying <laughs> that things like the Egyptian pyramids were built by uh, extraterrestrial aliens. I went out and got a copy of the book, Chariots of the Gods, and I read it. And it was like, it was like archaeological pornography. It was just over-the-top, <laughs> insane stuff, page after page after page. And again and again... Um, underestimating the abilities of ancient people and pre- presuming that instead of people being responsible for things like the pyramids and the sphinx, uh, that instead it was, a, I, you know, I guess you'd call them an extraterrestrial peace corps that landed on the earth and taught our ancestors how to do all this stuff and gave them all these spectacular technologies that really are reflected in, in the archaeological record. And that got me hooked because I read that I read von Honecken's book, and then I got a couple of other versions of uh, other uh, books that he had written, all on the same topic. And and from there, uh, by the time I, I ended up um, in grad school and I was uh, done everything but completed my PhD, I actually got a job teaching at the university where I now am. It was then Central Connecticut State College, and one of my jobs that first semester was to teach a course called Search in archaeology. And what that meant was supposed to gear that to freshman students who know nothing at all about the field, just give them kind of a, the beginnings of it, an inkling of what archaeology is all about. And I went right. into that class, I've got to be honest with you, I had no idea what I was going to teach. I mean, I was trained uh-huh. to teach introduction to archaeology. So I sat down with the class and said, well, this is a, you know, a very general, popular topics class. What topics would you like to hear about? And I got to tell you, it was scary because it was things like, well, we want to hear about Atlantis. We want to hear about Piltdown Man. We want to hear about evolution. We want to hear about Egyptian pyramids. We want to hear about ancient astronauts. And so, so many of the topics these kids brought up were these pseudoscience topics, these topics on the real fringes of archaeology. And so I said, all right, fine. And we went through that whole list. And the kids loved the class so much so that within a year or so, it had become a standard part of the curriculum for archaeology uh, students, for anthropology majors, and in fact for general education students at the university. And, and from, that, from that one experience, I went on to write the, the book Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, uh, Science and Pseudoscience and Archaeology, and have become sort of the point guy in my discipline when these extreme and extraordinary claims are made about either the human past or how we learn about the human past. And I tell you, it's been, it's been a real thrill ride because just about every year some new topic is brought up, some new extreme claim is brought up with very little scientifically to recommend it, but that gets really popular, really catches people's attention, really strikes a chord. And so folks like me and, and colleagues have to respond to these claims. But take us back a little bit before the Von Daniken volume. I mean, the Von Daniken volume, for those of us who have been around for a while, that was right. a touchstone, and that was a turning point oh, in a lot of the pseudoscience. And for better or worse, and I'll stake this claim pretty clearly, one of the interesting side effects of these types of sensationalist 
um, volumes and these sensationalist myths is that it brings people interested into it and it also promotes their curiosity and I guess a reasonable percentage of people actually start to get into the reality of it, the science of it, to understand how these types of crackpot uh, sorts of uh, theories get put together. So take us back to the period before Von Daniken. What were the real pseudoscience issues that people dealt with? Well, you know, to, to kind of bring us up to Van Donnick and to start kind of at the beginning, uh, talk about the 19th century, um, there was a real movement among cultural geographers and cultural anthropologists and even archaeologists called diffusionism. And the, the fundamental assumption there was that people, especially ancient people, were basically pretty dull and, and uncreative. And that maybe sometime in the history of the world there was one genius culture that developed, something like ancient right. Egypt, and that right. every other society that came into contact with them borrowed or stole those ideas. So the notion here was that agriculture, that could only have been invented once by people. Metallurgy, that could only be, have been invented once by people. Large monumental structures, that could only be, have been invented once by people. L written language, again, only one possible source. And the source is usually given as Egypt. And so even when we were find, uh, uh, anthropologists and, and historians and geographers were finding very advanced and sophisticated civilizations thousands of miles from ancient Egypt, the claim was made, but well, somehow or another, the Egyptians must have visited there and, and shared this, this great civilization with other people, including the Maya and the Aztecs and the Inca. They, they, they are so far away from Egypt, they couldn't have developed these, these technologies on their own, so they must have borrowed it from ancient Egypt. As archaeology developed, it became clear that there was no evidence for that whatsoever. Then people started pointing in other directions. Um, the Atlantis story, that Ignatius Donnelly, who wrote um, his book An uh, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, and was published in the late 19th century. I mean, he essentially was saying the same thing these diffusers were saying, except instead of saying, well, it must be Egypt that is the source of all of this technology, he pointed, instead of Egypt, he pointed to a spot in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, saying, well, there must have been a great and advanced, sophisticated civilization there, and that's the source of all creativity, of all technological development, of all, of all the, the evolution of culture everywhere in the world, must be traced to Atlantis. So if there are pyramids in Egypt, but pyramids in Mesoamerica, they must have had a single source. If there's agriculture in Southeast Asia and primitive agriculture in Southwest Asia and primitive agriculture in Europe and in Africa, well, it must have all come from one place, and the one place must be Atlantis. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the people who actually promoted this type of thinking were some of the well-to-do 19th century antiquarians, right? Those oh, are the yeah, people. absolutely. And you know, and a, a lot of it, I think, in the bottom line for a lot of it was um, these 19th century wealthy antiquarians were Europeans who right. looked around the world and saw people who, if for their contemporary times, they perceived as being primitive and backward. People in Southern Africa, people in South America, people in Mesoamerica, people in Asia. So the assumption was, well, they're very backwards and primitive now. How could they ever, on their own, have developed sophisticated civilizations in antiquity? I mean, ancient Egypt, that's Africa. The, the Aztecs and the Maya and the Toltecs, that's Mexico. Um, these are all dark-skinned people. These are all non-European people. And the, the, the conceit was, well, they couldn't have developed these things on their own. They must have gotten it from somewhere else. So you've got European scholars looking all around the world, 
uh, feeling very superior, looking at people they perceive to be primitive, and just not understanding that those folks on their own could have developed advanced and sophisticated cultures like those re- reflected in the archaeological record. You know, for me, von Donneken is just the latest version of that. And von Donneken, who is now kind of the, the grandfather of, of the ancient astronaut hypothesis, and Giorgio Tsoukalos, who is now the, the, uh, the, the, the guy behind, the, kind of the brains behind the Ancient Alien series on the History Channel, that, that fundamentally what these guys are saying is the same thing, only instead of pointing to ancient Egypt as the source or pointing to Atlantis as the source, they're pointing up in the sky and saying it's, it's aliens came from outer space. The point here, the reason we call this a pseudoscience, is that fundamentally there is absolutely zero evidence to recommend any of those claims. We know now, especially now, you know, modern archaeology has shown very clearly that these civilizations that are located all across the face of the earth that have, have long developmental sequences in the archaeological record showing us exactly how they developed these spectacular and advanced civilizations at their peaks. But the same is true for Egypt, as is true for the Aztecs, as is true for the Maya, as is true for the Shang dynasty. Is that archeolo- The archaeological record shows this is a long developmental process of the development of civilization. And that we have, we have the requisite steps leading to it. There's no need to believe that these civilizations were handed these folks kind of as, as, a, as a whole piece all at once at some time in the past. And we'll be back with our very special guest, Dr. Kenneth Fader, after these words. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Today's episode in our in our series Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology is focused on myth and specifically frauds and debunking uh pseudoscience uh and the types of interpretations and the type of really hidden agendas that some of the uh, famous people in the past or folks with hidden agendas tried to perpetrate really on the general population. And I was going to ask our very special guest, Dr. Kenneth Fader, who's a specialist in these things, what, so what about religious religious uh, motivations and what about hidden agendas and what is it about that that uh, gets certain people not only to formulate their own agendas and their own perspectives but captivates people about it yeah i mean I think that's 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 exactly the right question um, when i when i talk to my students about this about these agendas i, I we put together a, a you know a checklist of what are the motives behind archaeological frauds and myths but also why do the, the recipients of these things, why, why are people so embrace, embracing of them? Why do they want to believe? And you brought up the, 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 the question of religion. Um, one of, the, one of the, 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 the motives for people perpetrating an archaeological hoax, sometimes it's just simply to make a buck, um, yeah. to, show archae- to, to, to charge people to see an archaeological specimen, to write books about it, to, to have TV shows about it. Um, and my, my favorite example of this, that also has this, re- that the reason people accepted it was because of a religious connection. My favorite example is a 19th century hoax in New York State, um, the Cardiff Giant. And this was an instance in which, in 1869, this farmer, this guy's name was Stubb Newell, having a well dug on his property, they uncover this 10-foot-tall giant man. It looked like, a, it looked like his body had turned to stone, like, a, like trees petrify. Uh-huh. And almost immediately, he started selling tickets for people to come and see a specimen that they, they actually called the Goliath of Cardiff. And that local ministers began including discussion of this proof of a Bible story, the story of giants, the story of Goliath, that, that this proof, this archaeological evidence was, was presented as proof, evidence of the literal truth of a part of the Old Testament of the Bible. And right. people paid, the, the folks who were behind this, the folks who, who uh, were making the money, made thousands and thousands of dollars. The, uh, the gentleman who, on whose farm the Cardiff Giant was discovered was actually offered $30,000 by P.T. Barnum for him to use the giant in his sideshow. And if you do the, the math, I've had an economist do the math for me, $30,000 in 1869 is like three-quarters of a million to a million dollars today. Mm-hmm. And again, the thing that, that drew people in, though, was the claim that this specimen, this archaeological specimen, actually provided support or proof for a biblical story that scientists were very skeptical about, that there were 10-foot-tall giants walking the earth in those days. So in this case... It's, it's funny, the, the guy who actually was the brains behind the Cardiff Giant wasn't trying to bring people to religion. He actually was an atheist who was trying to exploit what he perceived to be the gullibility of people who believed in the Bible. 
And he was very successful in making a ton of money, and people wanted to believe, this desire to believe that this actually proved a Bible story. You know, that's 1869. You know, we see the same thing today when people claim that they've got evidence of Noah's Ark in the mountains of Ararat. Sure, and they have right. aerial photographs. Or, uh, and the funny thing about that is that almost invariably they have photographs, but the photographs are never really very high resolution, and they're kind of out of focus. And the people, the, so many of the, the folks who say they were there, they disappear. Um, and in, in my favorite case, uh, I, I guess a gentleman uh, went up to the, claimed to have, have climbed Mount Ararat and brought back a piece of the ark, again, proving a Bible story, got a lot of people all excited. Um, when they did an analysis of the piece of wood, it turned out to be, um, the source tend, to tend, turned out to be from California, and it had this very dark uh, color to it, and it turned out that it, it had been soaked in teriyaki sauce to make it look old. <laughs> and yet people, people embraced this. They lost all sense of skepticism. They never questioned it, because here was something that maybe proved uh, a story in the Bible <clears throat> that scientists tend to be rather skeptical about. So... You know, and and you also have have the the, the 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 rationale that well maybe if you pull off an archaeological fraud but you bring people to God that you're not doing something that's that's sinful that you're doing something that's good even though the fraud even though the, the specimen is fraudulent so there are so many different layers of this. well well that's and that's a critical one and, and I'd like you to discuss this in some great detail do sure. we have any real sort of quasi conspiracy types of stories that, in which we have some evidence that a group of pastors or ministers or um, religious people were trying to actually perpetrate some kind of a myth that would advance their own interests on a large scale or, or over long periods of time. You know, that's, a real, that's, that's an incredibly interesting question. And the problem in my answering it is that you know, you're never sure. People, uh, to just, just as a little sidebar here, people will ask me all the time, well, do you think Eric Von Donneken really believes that stuff? Or, yeah. and, or, or, is, or, or is, is it all, is he making it up and he knows he's as, out for the money? And the example I'll give you in terms of religion are the Paluxy footprints. I don't know if you're, uh, if you're familiar with them. This is no. a site in Texas along the Paluxy River where beginning in the, um, I think it was the early 20th century, uh, people began finding dinosaur footprints, genuine dinosaur footprints in the uh, mud, in the, in the, the obviously solidified mud, along the Paluxy River. And uh, during the Depression, people began finding what they claimed to be giant human footprints in that mud as well. And these are footprints that are 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 inches long. Um, right. And so uh, pe people began, a couple things were happening. Number one is local people were actually making fraudulent dinosaur footprints in order to sell to tourists, but also to sell to museums. Museums were coming down to buy footprints to show um, uh, in, their, in, their, at, in their facilities, and so locals were fabricating these. But also there were these very highly eroded dinosaur footprints that were being interpreted not as dinosaur footprints, but as giant human footprints. And a number of, uh, especially in the middle to the latter half of the 20th century, a number of religious organizations began embracing this notion 
And um, there was even talk of, of buying up all of these dinosaur footprints and building a theme park around them with, are you ready, uh, a full-scale replica of Noah's Ark to right. show that, yes, these animals, the dinosaurs were alive right before the flood. Giant humans were alive right before the flood. There was the evidence for it, and they were going to make it into kind of a, uh, a Disney-esque version of the Old Testament of the Bible, the story of Noah and the Ark and the dinosaurs who apparently went on board the Ark or didn't get on board the Ark. So, you know, you have to ask, were, were the folks, were the religious folks, aware of the fact that paleontologists had uh, analyzed these footprints and, and absolutely this, you know, concluded that these were, in fact, dinosaur footprints, were not giant human footprints. It was just a misinterpretation of how these things had eroded. So were the religious folks behind this aware of that? They probably were aware of the fact that paleontologists had, had debunked this. But, of course. But right. did they care? Or was it all about, listen, uh, we want to believe these things are real, so we will believe these things are real, and we'll use them in order to bring people to God the way we see it should be done. Um, so I guess you know, you'd have to ask each one of these folks individually, did you really believe this, um, or, or was this, or did you feel this was just simply a way to increase your flock? Um, and I just, I, right. you know, I'm, just, I'm not sure, just as I'm not sure if does, does Eric Von Donegan at this point, does he really believe the stuff, the nonsense in his books, or is, is this all part of a, a, you know, a kind of a cynical plan just to sell a lot of books? What, what do you make of contemporary trends? I mean, we know that there are parts of the country in which these types of beliefs and, and these sentiments uh, uh, really uh, towards, towards the objective of saying science be damned in a sense, the, they still are prevalent. I mean, the fact oh, that, yeah. cre that creationism is still being taught in many parts of the country and that those steadfast uh, preachings of a lot of ministers and, and church people uh, maintain this type of perspective to this day. Are we making progress? Are, are we seeing the debunking of myths? Or, or are, are people who still believe this stuff just sort of uh, batting down the hatches and digging in? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the whole creationism thing. Um, that this, is, this is an ongoing issue for a very long time. I mean, the, the Scopes trial um, that I, I, I hope most of your listeners are familiar with. This was a, a trial in Tennessee where a law was passed actually making it illegal to teach evolution um, right. in the state school, to, to illegal to teach Darwin. Um, and there was a court case in which a teacher actually did teach Darwin. He was arrested, and this was a cause celebrity. I mean, you had Clarence Darrow arguing for the defense, and William Jennings William Bryan, Jennings who, Bryan was, sure. who ran for president several times, who actually was the representative for the, pro the prosecutorial team. Now, that's the, that's the 1920s. Um, that law, the law forbidding the teaching of evolution, was on the books in Tennessee, and I believe, until the 1960s, so not that long ago. And today, you're absolutely right, we have any one of a number of states in which in, there are yeah. laws that effectively support the notion of equal time. So that if you, you, they don't forbid the teaching of evolution. If you teach evolution, you also have to teach alternatives. Because it's, it's never really clear well, what alternatives are you talking about. But in their minds, it's almost always kind of a fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible. Um, the world is really 6,000 years old. It was really created in six days. Um, 
there's no such thing as evolution. Everything was created more or less as it was uh, was created is today more or less as it was from the very beginning. Um, and this it's an ongoing problem. It, this is not something that that has been solved certainly in the 21st century. And that if you 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 could go online and and you can actually find virtually every year probably a half a dozen to a dozen states in which new legislation has been proposed for limiting the teaching of evolution or at least including um, uh, restrictions on its teaching and encouraging the teaching of alternatives, i.e. creationism or intelligent design. Design, and so right, and that's is, the new buzzword. It's a never-ending battle. Uh, it, it certainly hasn't been fixed. I'm not sure it's getting better. I'm not sure it's getting worse, but it's something in which scientists have to be ever vigilant and ever on their guard um, and and it, it actually it takes the time of a lot of very good people to make sure that that curriculums really do reflect what the scientific consensus is. And we will be back and continue our very provocative discussion with Dr. Kenneth Fader after these words. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkhart and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkhart every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Today's topic on the program is pseudoscience, myth, and especially the prevalence of a lot of mythic constructions that have drawn people's attentions to archaeology over the course of the past one and one and two hundred years. And my guest, Dr. Kenneth Fader, has made a uh, 
actually a vocation of studying these things because they are very important and they do overlap with some of the professionalism that is involved in archaeology. And one of the interesting elements and possibly even a positive spin to all of this is sensationalism tends to draw people's attention and when their attention is drawn, they very often go to the source and they really want to find out about it. And when they find out about it, a lot of rational people look at the science and understand that there is, in fact, a scientific basis for a lot of what we do and that archaeology is, in fact, grounded in science. So, Ken, I'd like to ask you, what about that positive element of it? What can you say about the positive outcome of people initially being drawn by sensationalism and then ultimately learning that science is really the pathway to understanding the past? Yeah, sure. You know, you know the old cliche, right? When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. And Absolutely. I think that's a really good approach here. Um, you know, when, when people are drawn to this, I, I, you know, I, I used to do, and I still do, surveys of my incoming students. And I ask them, you know, do, do, you, do you know about and do you believe claims like that there was a lost continent of Atlantis or ancient aliens built the pyramids? And go on and on and on. And actually, my survey has been done in various universities uh, in the United States, but also in Australia and in Europe. And the, 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 common, the common result is that when you ask people, you know, how strongly do you, you know, from, do you strongly believe, mildly believe, don't know, mildly disbelieve, strongly disbelieve, there are the, the percentage of true believers, of people who say, oh, absolutely, aliens built the pyramids, is always very small. And that most of the people kind of fall out in the middle. They go, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. And so those folks are fascinated by the possibilities, but they are not firmly, they're not religiously committed to their being right. on the continent of Atlantis. And so, you know, I, I have this argument with my colleagues all the time who say, well, we, shouldn't, we should ignore this stuff. We shouldn't respond because it, it, it raises it to a level uh, that it doesn't deserve. I said, no, you, what you've got to do is you've got to grab those people who saw that show uh, on cable and were fascinated. Really, is there truth to that? Is there any reality behind that? Because you're right, that makes them open to hearing the other side. And we are, at the scientific the perspective, represents the other side. I'll give you a sure. perfect example of that. Um, I was on a cable documentary about ancient Egypt, and I was, you know, I, I call myself sometimes the beacon of sanity in a sea of madness. So you have all these folks saying, Egyptians couldn't have built it, it must be ex extraterrestrial aliens or whatever, and I simply tried, in a very, of course, I'm talking ahead, very brief period of time, we know how the Egyptians built the pyramids, we know the sequence, and I received an email a couple of weeks after the show aired from a person who thought I was full of it. I mean, just went on and on about, uh, you know, how can you say these things? Uh, how, nobody knows how these were done. It's nonsense to believe we know how these are done. And I responded to him. I said, listen, uh, I got my three minutes on that show and obviously didn't have the time to go into the details of what we know about the development of Egyptian pyramids. But sure. if you really want to know, here are three very well-written, popular sources that will give you that information. And you know what? Within a couple of weeks, the guy wrote me back saying, you know, I had no idea that archaeologists had actually solved these mysteries. And I said, yes, we have. And, 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 but but this, this is a person who was not necessarily a strong believer in, in these extreme claims, but somebody who saw the show, 
the show was leaning towards the sensationalist explanation, and he didn't know where to look for scientific evidence for how the Egyptian pyramids were built. That's, I mean, that's the kind of opportunity that archaeologists need to take advantage of. Here's somebody who was drawn to the field because of these extreme claims, but he was somebody who could be reasoned with. And I think most but, people are. But that gives us a real issue here. I mean, this is basically saying in a way that we're losing the war because in the public relations domain, we haven't gotten the message out. Like you say, almost all of these pseudoscience myths, can be, all of them certainly, can be debunked, and yet people run to them. They're drawn to them. We're doing a bad job with this, aren't we? Yeah, you know, we are, but it's not entirely our fault. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, it, it's it, one of the things that we, we talk about, how, how should archaeologists deal with pseudoscience? And one of the problems is that most of what we now do is reactive. You know, yes. we, we, sit at our, we sit in our nice little offices, we teach our classes, we write articles and books for other archaeologists, and we right. only deal with this stuff when, when we're called on it. When somebody says, oh, wait, I saw this show. What archaeologists have to be have to be a lot more proactive. I have a friend of mine who's at the Ohio Historical Society, Brad Lepper, who runs. Uh, I think it's a weekly newspaper column talking about the spectacular discoveries in archaeology. Um, mm -hmm. There are there are popular books. There are archaeologists. Not there's Brian Fagan, who's a, a very well known archaeologist who writes. He's books been on our program. He's been here. General public. Um, yes. Uh, these are folks who who have the courage to to say to our colleagues, listen. The work that we're doing for each other is important, but it's every bit as important to communicate this proactively to a public so that when, when folks who go out and see actual, actual archaeological sites, who go to museums, who have a background now in how the archaeological record has been interpreted, when they see that show on cable, they'll be able to say, well, I know that's not true because I went to the museum where they explained how this was done. Um, we need to do a much better job of that, obviously. And what we have to do is, of course, is, is convince the producers of cable documentaries that the real deal archaeology will get them as good ratings as the extreme and extraordinary claims made by the pseudoscientists. And this is, this is a, a burden that falls squarely on our shoulders. Absolutely. And it's something that we absolutely have to do. Are you finding that your enrollments, say, in, the, in your courses are increasing over the years as people really, as, as, as sort of enlightened people, specifically kids who go to college, really want to find out about this? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, I do teach a class in, um, in archaeological frauds, and it's always full. And another, I'll give you an example of uh, Bill Honeychurch, who's an, an archaeologist at Yale University. Um, he got the job of teaching Introduction to Archaeology. And he told me that, that as an undergraduate class, they usually had about a dozen to two dozen kids in the class. He changed it from the kind of straightforward methodology class to a class uh -huh. about archaeological frauds and myths, right? That class went from 20 students to over 400 students. He's got this, he has to, they have to teach, he has to teach the class in an auditorium now rather than in a standard classroom because kids flock to these, these classes. Now, maybe they flock to them because they think there's something to the extreme claims. That's okay. Now he's got 400 kids in the class who are going to hear real deal archaeology and most of those kids will, will, will leave. Maybe inoculated is the best word. Inoculated. Right. Um, fr from the, the, the claims made 
by the pseudoscientists uh, who claim to be archaeologists. Yeah, but, but and this is a very interesting point, because right now in this period of belt tightening, budget restrictions, you would think that it would be the, in the interests of the department to attract more and more students, and this is exactly the type of course that would bring them in. Right, right. It's, um, I, I have heard, and this is an apocryphal story, that, you know, that, that again, my, the, the, my archaeological frauds book, um, when, when I wrote that back, when it was first published back in uh, early 1989-1990, there really weren't any books covering this. And the feedback that I received from a number of my colleagues is, you know, we didn't have a class in kind of these popular extreme topics in archaeology, but now that your book is available, they now have the classes. So it, in some way, I think I inspired my colleagues to, to, to use, exploit, these extreme claims in a class that would certainly gather a lot of students in because it sounds like a really interesting topic. And then once, you, once they're there, you disabuse them or debunk, disabuse them of these claims, debunk these claims, but show how the real archaeological record is incredibly fascinating, um, more interesting, I think, than anything that, that the pseudoscientists can claim. And, fact and, straight, you know, you fact stranger than that. fiction. Right, right. Exactly. Absolutely. And so, do you have cases where you've actually stimulated students to get into the field because they got so enwrapped in the real message of science that they were uh, inspired to go ahead and actually pursue careers in archaeology? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I tell you what. One of my favorite emails that I get these days is emails from students who don't go into archaeology but it's three or four or five or six years after they've graduated. And I get emails from students saying, you know, you won't remember me, but I took your intro archaeology class. And I thought some of those, especially some of those slides you showed, really interesting. And recently I was on vacation and I realized I was near where one of those sites you showed, you know, these publicly open sites, and I actually went there. And you inspired me to actually see the sites that you talked about in your class. There's nothing better than that. Because the vast majority of the students who are ever going to walk through my classes are not going to go on in archaeology. They're not going to get PhDs in archaeology, but they're going to be voting citizens. They're going to be people whose, whose decisions, who will make decisions that will affect funding in archaeology and whether museums stay open and whether sites get preserved. And so uh, as much as I am proud of the fact that, yes, some of my students go on to graduate school, um, I'm also just equally proud of the fact that Kids who had no background in archaeology, never pursued a career in archaeology, but, they're, but they are citizens who are interested in preserving the past and learning about it, because in some way I inspired them uh, to do so. And it's very similar to what we have now, um, teaching a lot of the leaders of industry that the environmental and cultural heritage movements are here to stay, and that they really need to know a little bit about it so that they don't actually put up resistance, but they understand that they have to cooperate with these interests, and uh, everybody sort of benefits from all that sort of thing, and, and I think uh, you know your work clearly uh, inspires in a certain direction, and uh, is clearly integrated with, with the preservation movement generally. Oh. So that hopefully science will prosper in the long run. We'll be back with our very, very detailed and provocative discussion with Dr. Ken Fader after these final messages.
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're uh, discussing the debunking of pseudoscience and its hold on a lot of people and the fact that it has, has actually attracted a lot of interest in the science of archaeology um, because there is so much curiosity on the part of the general public. My guest is Dr. Kenneth Fader, who is professor of archaeology at Central Connecticut State University. And over the break, we were talking about his devotion to these types of issues and his uh, efforts to undertake um, serious archaeological teaching and pedagogy and instructing his students in the appreciation of archaeological sites and what they really tell us about the past and about the capabilities of, of prehistoric peoples and historic uh, developments. Ken, why don't you tell us about your, your present projects and how uh, these are moving in that direction of uh, bringing science to the public and how students are getting enlightened as to what really went on in the past. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the, the key question you asked earlier in the, in, the, in the show was, you know, how should archaeologists respond? And, you know, we have to respond, but if all we're ever doing is responding to the claims of other folks, we never get our message out there. Right. And, uh, Several years ago, I began this project. I call it the 50 sites. You know, the 50 archaeological sites you should see before you die, or something like that. And I right. have slowly but surely been checking off my list of all these sites that are open to the public, sites where there are museums and trails where you yourself can go and visit these places and see up for yourself the astonishing accomplishments uh, of, of ancient folks. So I've been doing this 50 sites project 
visiting uh, cliff dwellings in the American Southwest and the great temple mounds of the Midwest that so few Americans are even aware of. These, these are sure. ancient truncated pyramids built by Native Americans before uh, Europeans got here. Effigy mounds, mounds in the sh- giant, uh, monumentally um, scaled mounds in the shape of various animals, uh, uh, and spectacular works of art, petroglyphs and pictographs that are scattered across the United States. And my, my, my desire is to inspire people, inspire people to actually go and see these places on their own to get a, a, a direct appreciation and a personal appreciation for the accomplishments of ancient folks. And, you know, it just seems to me that if, if you go to Mesa Verde and you see the cliff dwellings and you actually walk up into them and then you see the museum displays that show how the archaeological record has been exposed, how a scientific approach to these folks has enabled us to date these sites, to, to, to tell you what they were eating, and to show the developmental sequence of the, the construction of these cliff dwellings. It, you know, it just seems to me that if you go and visit Cahokia, which is this, a, a Native American city, six or seven hundred years old, on the banks of the Mississippi and Illinois, and you see the scale of that earthen pyramid, Monk's Mound, on top of which a chief's temple was located. And then you go to the museum and, again, see the artifacts that have come out of the mounds and see the developmental sequence, the, the, the long period of time it took for that ability to evolve and develop. When you see sites like that, I think that, the, that most people come away saying, listen, now at least I understand that Native people, that, that pr- people in the past were not primitive, they were not... Um, uh, foolish, they were not stupid, but they were very capable and certainly capable of developing technologies that even from a modern perspective seem impressive. Uh, You see these things up close and personal, you see them for yourself, and I can't help but think that you walk away with a much greater appreciation for the abilities of, of, of ancient folks. And you're getting a very positive response from the students. Oh, you know, absolutely. I, it's, I have a, a ton of fun. In fact, that's what I do in one of my uh, my class on North American prehistory is that the, the, in the term project, I have 25 kids in the class, and each kid has to take two states in the United States and is essentially provide like a chamber of commerce uh, project to inspire people, to encourage people to come to their state because here are the archaeological sites you can see. And these kids do a great job. They had to put together these great PowerPoints showing, you know, taking photographs off the Internet of archaeological sites, of the artifacts that you can see in museums, with details on where the museums are located, where the sites are located, how much it costs to get there. And, it's, and I think they're, uh, these kids come away with, sometimes it's kids who come from the state you know, that they're covering, and they're, they're proud of their state. And sometimes these kids then go out and actually see the sites during the course of their their lives that they've that they've talked about in their project. So, I think that works really well. Um, and you know, the sites that that I've been dealing with here, we're looking at stuff that's visually really impressive, awe-inspiring. Um, there's a wow factor for all of these places. And and again, you know, the true believers maybe you're never going to convince, but for the vast majority of folks who just wonder about how we explain the, the great houses of the Southwest or how we explain right. the development of agriculture. They're not quite sure. When you go out and actually see these things for yourself, you can't help, I think, but come away convinced that, yeah, ancient people were pretty smart and um, uh, uh, enormously capable, 
and, uh, and, and certainly deserve our attention and appreciation. Would you say in the long run, or based on what you've observed even in your career, is pseudoscience on the wane, or are we always going to have that kind of fascination and sort of the hucksters that promote it? Uh, yeah. that continue to thrive no matter what the educational advances that we make are? I, I, pseudoscience, I think, will, with arche, in archaeology and everything else, I think will always be there. And we're always kind of stuck with this kind of intellectual game of whack-a-mole, you know, that one of these things pops its head up and there's a bunch of cable shows and a couple of books and we archaeologists whack it down, but then another one pokes its head up, ancient astronauts or Nostradamus or, or the Maya apocalypse that pops up someplace else. We're sure, always sure. going to be in a position where we've got to whack those moles, but we also need to take a proactive approach and get people interested in the real archaeological record. And you're seeing that education ultimately does win out and hopefully uh, paves the way for a more comprehensive understanding of science going forward, I would hope. Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately we need to be optimistic that, in fact, that's the case. We, can, we have to be ever vigilant because these things are always going to pop up, but, uh, but I, I believe ultimately, you know, the facts are on our side. And, and people, as much as they might want to believe some of these things, they don't want to be fooled or appear to be foolish. And so they are, I think that the general public is more than willing to listen to, to consider what real archaeology has to say. And as long as we make our, our argument based on the facts, I think we win the vast majority of the time. And on that very positive note, we're going to have to bring the program to its conclusion. I want to thank Dr. Kenneth Vader, uh, Professor of Archaeology at Central Connecticut State University, for sharing his insights on pseudoscience. And hopefully some of you will be inspired to and, and be drawn to the actual science of archaeology. And on that note, thank you very much for listening and good evening to you all. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.